four, three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everybody, this is Dan, and I'm coming to you today from Los Angeles, California, with an old, old friend, Steve Nalepa. How are you today? I'm doing great. Great to see you. You too. We we haven't seen each other in, I'm guessing, at least 10 years, maybe longer. It's been quite a while. And we met back in the 90s. I was working for Kodak, and you were publishing art books in L.A. through a uh, through a company, Dilettante Press. That's right. But the thing we were talking earlier before we started recording, the thing that jumps out in my mind when I see your name or I hear your name is the fact that, uh, first of all, you went to Yale. So a guy like me went to Texas. You know, Yale was this pinnacle of of education that I knew that I was never going to get to. So the fact that you went to Yale always gets me. The second thing is you studied math, which I was tutored in math from sixth grade on, and I was a D student even after the tutoring. So it was just subsistence living, you know, trying to get through it. But you also played football. So that was the trifecta of, of kind of oddity for me. But explain that. How does that happen? Well, it definitely is, is interesting because I meet people now and, you know, that is not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind when they meet me. They don't, don't suppose, oh, yeah, you were. So I don't know. I mean, I played sports as a kid and was really into math. I think I got into it with one of those owl calculator quizzer things that oh, yeah. it was a game basically and it made it fun. So I was doing like multiplication and division and time tables before even kindergarten. So I really, you know, I think that and I had some great teachers along the way who really inspired me. So, and it was something that just kind of, yeah, uh, I enjoyed and it came naturally to me and it was always something where it's either right or wrong as an answer. There's a lot of wiggle room when it comes to like creative writing or yeah, art English things or whatever. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, why is this grade uh, uh, this instead of this? You know, it's your opinion that I didn't make this essay in such a way that it, it describes it. Whereas X equals 42, it's yeah. either 42 or it's not 42. <laughs> and you know it's right or wrong. And I appreciated that. So I always was drawn more to that. Yeah, and then I realized somewhere along the way that I wanted to be an artist, which, much to my my parents' delight, who were like, "Wait, we spent all this money on Yale, and you want to you want to do music? Like, are you out of your mind? You didn't even study yeah. music." And I think that's what parents do, though. They they recoil in horror at what their children have become. It's, I I know I'm getting ready for that myself as we're about to have a a, a baby girl and. Um, yeah, I think the biggest thing was I had a bunch of offers from Wall Street and, you know, the investment banking world oh, was something that I was considering and it just didn't feel right to me. And, you know, I have friends who went that route and have done very well for themselves. But, um, you know, I think deep down, I'm, I'm just really happy because I have, I, you know, I knew what where my passion was and I, I pursued it and I've had this really interesting you know, path that I've taken to get where I am. And, um, you know, it was definitely, there was a moment there though, where my, my, my parents were having a real hard time. My dad had the same job for his whole life as a policeman in Chicago. And he's sees me having this opportunity to go and cash in and take, get this job really high paying right out of school. 
And instead, I moved to L.A. and I'm teaching high school math and science and doing costume children's parties on the weekend as Barney and Power Rangers and <laughs> Winnie the Pooh and Lamb Chop. And he's like, we sent you to Yale and you're fucking Barney? Like, <laughs> are you on drugs? Like, what is wrong with you? You know? That's so. well, my, my follow-up question to that was as a math major at Yale, what would you – What I mean, I hear math major and I think, well, there's no jobs in math. But obviously into the financial world would have been a pretty interesting interesting endeavor. How soon after getting out did you say, look, I'm not, uh, the financial world's not for me, I'm going to go into music? How soon was that? Well, it wasn't necessarily music originally. Um, I think some of my first plans where I had dreamed of being kind of like a new Bill Nye the Science Guy type oh, yeah. character where I wanted to teach math, science, art, music um, to kids in a way where it was combining sort of cutting edge, uh, you know, music, uh, cutting edge visuals, the, the technology. and. Something because the big thing that I found is a lot of people have a hard time getting into math because the teacher wasn't really into it and mm -hmm. didn't make that extra effort other than just handing out the homework yeah. to show them why it actually mattered in their life. Uh, I had this experience where I was teaching at a school. I came in to at, cross, at Crossroads School um, oh, yeah. Yeah. where a lot of movie star kids. It was funny because yeah, my yeah. first gig was like the, I did a semester at Valley Toro High School, which was a small all boys orthodox jewish high school where they called me rabbi steve which you know <laughs> was really surreal because i didn't grow up jewish and yeah. it was i'm like you know next the rabbi thing you're gonna get me in trouble with the other <laughs> teachers here and um and then to go from that to like teaching at a school where you know damon waynes jr and luke skywalker's son and yeah. and you know it was just very surreal juxtaposition and you're you teaching kids math there and i'm teaching math and so i really made an effort there to you know, turn them on to all the different things that you could do with it. Because, you know, most people's excuse is like, oh, I'm not going to build a bridge or be an engineer. Right, right. But, I mean, really at the end of the day, you're in school to learn how to learn. I think that's the most important thing that I've taken from it. And, and my teaching over the years has mm -hmm. been, you know, the reality is like most of the stuff, whether it's with music, there's technology, it's going to be by the time you graduate, there's going to be new tools out there yeah. and you're going to have to figure them out. Or if it's whatever field you're in, it's really about developing the self-confidence to trust that you can figure out. Sure. Because everything's, there's so much knowledge available to us now, way more than when we were coming up. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. You know, there's no excuse for not, you know, I can mention something. You should be able to just go online, Google it, you know, dig in yeah. and find what you need to know. And so, um, you know, that was the thing that, that I realized, like, okay, yes, I'm not necessarily applying, like, math and economics, but... I've developed certain ways of critical thinking that, like, for example, when we started the book publishing company, yeah. I didn't know anything about art books and putting books out, but I learned that I trusted that I could figure this stuff out. So I start, we started doing research. We figured out who prints the most beautiful books, where's the, who's distributing our favorite books, mm -hmm. you know, research how to write a business plan, bought all the books on how to publish books and start a business and all the rest of it and just kind of figured it out as and we see, went along. And see, I thought you were this well-oiled machine when I met you. I was like, oh, he's an art book publisher. I didn't know that you'd just done, sat down yeah, and Yeah, well, that. by that point, we were a well-oiled machine because we dove in head first, you know, and I think that's really committing to something and going for it is something. I had a friend in college and there's that book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, and one of the big things in that book, you know, his dad had read this book every year as kind of a refresher and really recommended it to me. And there was a story in there that always stuck with me is this idea of, you know, there was some, some story about these generals bringing their soldiers over the sea and they came in the first, they were outnumbered five to one in this battle and the first command was burn the boats. 
Oh, you know, so but so the no, guys were yeah. like, oh, well, how are we going to flee if, if we're <laughs> losing? It's like, no, we either win or we perish. And I think that level of commitment of not giving yourself this other out, because yeah. you see it all the time. People move to L.A. and they're like, oh, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be, I'm going to do this. And then they get some side job to kind of support them. And, you know, they're working at night as a bartender, for example, or whatever. And then they stop going to classes because they're too hungover or they're too tired. And, they, you know, yeah. their, their priorities waver. And it's not to say that, yeah, you have to do things to support yourself in the early days. For example, make balloon animals for kids yeah, on the Barney. weekends, you know, or, <laughs> or, you know, be a paranormal news researcher uh, or whatever you end up finding your way down right, doing these right. things. But... It's really important to keep focused on what is the, your goal and what is your objective and make sure you're always working towards that every day. And, you know, being a freelancer, a freelance artist, you don't have that same structure like you do when you're in school or when you work in a corporation. You have to really be self-motivated. And, you know, not everyone's cut out to do that. And it definitely takes a lot of discipline to... I think the two things that you said, the, the first of all, commitment. And the, the also this idea of the sort of quest for knowledge. I realize now, I told you earlier, I got sick a few years ago. It really changed the way that I look at the world. And uh, two, almost three years ago at the same time, I sort of deleted all my social media. I quit going online unless I had to, and I started reading. And I will read anything. And what I realized just very recently was people kept asking me, wow, you, you read that many books, and why are you do reading that much? And why are you reading some obscure book about a mountain climbing accident in Nepal that happened 15 years ago? And it's this, I realized I have this unbelievable thirst for knowledge, for mm -hmm. still learning. And I feel like when I worked as a photographer, I spent almost 25 years in photography, a part of my brain was asleep that entire time mm -hmm. because I was doing, I was so myopic, I was doing the same thing. And I realize now that I look back and sort of pulled the parachute and said, man, there's a whole lot of stuff to learn out there. And it's a really, it's an exciting thing for me because every time I learn something, I want to turn around and like tell someone else, hey, do you know about this? So it's a, it's a pretty, a pretty interesting uh, way well, that, to That to was a life. big revelation for me that this realization and something that whenever I teach, I'm always trying to impart this on my students is that it, life is always this continuous quest. It's a, you're never done learning. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, Oh, I can't wait to be done with school. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? It doesn't stop when you finish with school. It's just yeah. the beginning. Now you don't have any structure. You're on your own and it's up to you to have that motivation to have that drive. And yep. so, um, you know, somewhere along the line, that fire I got lit inside of me, and I had just had this passion. And I feel really blessed. I've had a lot of great mentors. And, you know, when we were doing the art book publishing company, through publishing these books and meeting all these these amazing mad scientist guys, these older artist dudes, I always said, you know, when I get to the point when I'm a little older, I want to be like these mad scientist mentor guys and help out the younger people because they could see in me this passion. I had this drive. They could see it in my eyes. They told me, you know, you remind me of me when I was your age. And, you know, we had these lofty ideals for this utopian thing where we're <laughs> like, oh, we're going to do these beautiful art books. And, you know, it's not – art books are not a get-rich business. It's no. like you barely break even, if if that. And it was definitely not a break-even situation. It was yeah. – financially, it was sort of a – you know, it was kind of a disaster. But – <laughs> For a life situation, like I met so many people. We published the Dalai Lama and Stephen Jay Gould and, yeah. you know, became friends with these people that it just changed my life that I've met all these people and I wouldn't change that for anything. And so 
you know, it's just like what what kind of price tag can you put on that? Finan- yeah. You know, there's no monetary value for these I mean, experiences the, that you get. The book you did with Gary, the Starstruck, mm-hmm. which was the book that I, that's why I met you, mm-hmm. was you did a book with a photographer named Gary Boas who did a book called Starstruck, which was a compilation of brownie, Kodak brownie photographs that Gary had made behind bars and speakeasies in New York. Well, he he lived in Amish country. He would drive his mother would drive him into the city, and he would make these really innocent but incredible portraits of these people. And that book was, and, and that was really my first, uh, even though I wasn't involved in it in any way. That was really the first book that I was able to sort of look at and track. And that thing was like a phenomenon. It traveled for five years, not straight. That book was incredible. Everybody that picks up that book, I still have it at the house. Everybody picks it up, and goes, "Oh my God, this is amazing!" So. Even though you didn't know that much about it, you you connected on a major way with an art book because most of them don't go anywhere. Well, that was a really interesting part. You know, it's funny. When I first moved to L.A., Gary, he saw me. I was running. I was living with a friend who was uh, the, you know, you, the uh, celebrity record holder of the L.A. Marathon who played football at Yale like 25 years before me. And his wife was the captain of the Olympic gymnastic team in 1884. And they... You know, they were like, oh, you can't call yourself an athlete and be this out of shape. So they were with me in the shape, and I was running with them. And, you know, I was staying with them for a few months. And they were running in the Jimmy Stewart Celebrity Relay Race. So I went with them <laughs> to run with them. And uh, Gary was checking me out. He was like, who's this guy? You know, he must be some young new soap star that I don't have a photo of yet. And he couldn't figure it out. He's like, do I need to get your autograph or what? You know, and so we started talking. And the thing about Gary is he just had the most amazing stories. I mean, he'd met everybody, everybody. And he had these insane adventures from just doing this. He was just a shy kid yeah. who started taking these pictures as a fan. And it was a way for him to show these pictures at these hobby fairs and everything else where he found it easier to make friends. And then, you know, when we were doing the book and doing the process, like he'd go and we'd meet some famous person and he'd pull out a photo of them from like 30 years ago yeah. with Gary before they were famous and they just blow their mind of like, wait, you photographed? I hadn't even done my first film yet. I was yeah. just a, you know, an extra on some Broadway play. Right. But he would photograph everybody just in case. And so um, we ended up doing another book first, but it's, yeah, Gary's, he's still, you know, he lives in Lancaster. He's yep. now, he's got an apartment in Paris. He became this, like, international art phenomenon. He has an apartment in Paris? And Amsterdam. Oh, man, I was just there for a couple of weeks. I had no idea. I haven't, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but. Yeah, I'm not sure where he is right now, but it's just amazing that he went from a guy who would, was in Lancaster and would come out to L.A. to photograph the award seasons. Yeah. But then, you know, he did this show in, I think it was with Mary Ellen Mark or someone, they had like a, a, a dual show in Paris and people just freaked out because Gary's so gracious. He was, yeah. you know, he understands what it is to be a fan. And so I think when yep. they did these book signings and these art shows, he would just give you the most, I mean, I'm sure your book probably has like yeah. a really loving, detailed, inscripted, yeah. you know, thing. And it's like... People really appreciated that, this sort of... Oh, he was, to me, was the guy. There There was no facade, no barrier. Gary's, like, heart was laid out on the table in front of him every day, and he did it. There is no better definition of a true fan than him. Because yeah. when he started doing that, there was no reward. He would take those pictures and put them in a little book. He would glue them in, and then he... That's it. That was the yeah. whole thing. And I think that's why these the celebrities looked at him and said, okay, he's not a paparazzi. 
I followed him around LA for a couple of months doing pictures of him doing pictures, and it was just same thing. It was just mind blowing how he was such an, an, an oddity in that community. It was yeah. just a different thing. And I have a great appreciation for for people that do that kind of work because it's so easy to chase the market and end up doing things that you're like, I always joke that if, if penguins became hot, there's like 50 photographers booking flights, you know, down to penguin land. And they're like, I don't know anything about penguins, but to the people who like really stick to their guns, I'm very, very impressed with. There's a purity of heart with him. And that was something that, you know, there was, it was pure passion, you know, and our first book was this book, uh, the end is near with all these sort of, a lot of them were self-taught or outsider artists where, you know, they just were driven to do their art. And there wasn't, you know, a lot of them weren't thinking like commercial, you know, how is this going to sell or whatever. And I think that was a big struggle that Gary's always had over time because when he started doing this, it was before, you know, Reagan and and, uh, John Lennon were shot or, you know, it was pre the National Enquirer tabloid culture. And, you know, now it's just such a different world. I mean, everyone's actively trying to agitate the person they're trying to take a photo of yeah. so they can get the reaction shot of them being angry or yeah. p- getting punched or whatever. You know, it's it's just a different reality. So, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things, like, I never saw that coming when I was, you know, studying math and playing yeah. football. I was like, oh, I'm going to be, you know going with Gary to these events and like going to Miss America pageant, for example, Gary did that for three years. I went down there with him and like hang out meeting all of the contestants. And I mean, you know, there's, it's funny because there was a time my senior year, the football banquet, the captain of the football team uh, was giving the speech at the, you know, and he was talking about there were these four old, like 80 something year old guys who would hang out every day at practice and just watch and just, you know, they were they're really sweet men. They always were really friendly, and they just, you know, this was their afternoon. They would come, they'd walk yeah. down from a couple blocks away where they lived and hang out and watch the, the, the scrimmaging and all the stuff. And then, you know, one day they told John, they're like, you know, when you get to be our age, let me tell you, it's not about the money. It's not about the material things. It's about the stories. It's about the life you've lived, the adventures you've shared with your friends. It, this is what matters. Don't live your life chasing all these things. Yes, you need money to do the things you want to do, but yeah. it's really about the stories. And that's funny because that really resonated with me. And I almost think I took that and went really far the <laughs> other direction where I like, okay, buy Wall Street. And I'm like, I'm going to just, everything I do, I kind of weigh is like, oh, is this going to be a good story at the yeah. end of the day? And that's the thing. Like some of my friends have made loads and loads of money, but I bet any money that I have way better stories than they oh, do. I can imagine. From, you know, just meeting these fascinating people. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, I just, it's a blessing. And I feel, you know, fortunate that, you know, it's, it's fulfilling in its own way of just like, it's that knowledge quest of, of when you, you know, if that's your drive and your motivation, you can always find fulfillment in that. And you can always manage, you know, if you trust that, things that work out, you can find a way to absolutely to do what you want to do. Okay, so we're going to fast forward here. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea how to introduce you. So like if I'm, you and I meet, we don't know each other, we're on flight, we're LA to New York, and I'm like, oh, hey, who are you? What do you do? How, how do you describe it? Um, my name is Stephen Aleppa, and I'm not smarter than a fifth grader. Oh, no, that's, <laughs> that's another chapter. Um, I, you know, I mean, my main thing is now what I tell people is I'm a uh, music producer, okay. and uh, yeah, I'm a musician. That, I'm in a band. That's what I was gonna say is music producer, yeah. but it kind of that because it's only one thing. It really, you know, it's funny because I have people that know me as like doing visuals in a VJ for shows. I know people 
who think of me, remind me as an art book publisher. I have people who think of me as a paranormal news researcher from my days at Strange Universe when I was working, you know, in the producing TV, a daily half-hour show where I'd find myself on the phone with people. So when you telepathically communicated with Bigfoot, what did he say? <laughs> this time machine in your backyard. What year are you going to first? You know, um, I have people that know me just from my uh, behind-the-scenes work touring with artists like The Weeknd and doing things where, you know, I'm helping you know, to facilitate the live shows. But uh, mainly what I've been doing is just writing and then working in the studio, and I've been producing other artists. I have a band called The Acid. I have another project called Airspace that just released. I produce music under my own, my last name, Nalepa. Um, so, yeah, I've been always doing music. It sort of took a backseat during the art book years because I realized at that point, I'm like, look, this is an incredible opportunity, mm -hmm. and I really just need to focus because... I can't do both right now, but this is something that, you know, it was incredible. We did a show at Deutsch Projects back in 2000 that won Art Forum Best of 2000, and, you know, we were joking, like, oh, we're going to get Gary on the cover of Art Forum, and we did get Gary on the cover of Art Forum and recreated his bedroom in the gallery with the 26-year-old bottle oh, of yeah, cologne. Yeah. I and, remember that. And, like, you know, recreated his bedroom with... Because besides taking all the celebrity photos, he also had like the cheesecake, beefcake guys. I have you know? one of those prints. I have one of his images in my office. With at the home. skateboarder, or which it's one? The, it's the image that has Miss Lancaster on one side. <laughs> oh and, yeah, and, <laughs> the triptych. Yeah, and the, and there's like a naked farm kid in the tree. <laughs> and then but, there's another Miss America. Yeah. Basically, there's like a Miss America. Yeah. And then an, another shot of yeah. her, and in the middle is some naked guy in the woods, and yeah. it's like, okay, what happened in these three consecutive <laughs> shots? He's like, oh, I must have met some hot guy that I. <laughs> talked him into going out in the woods for a photo. And, and I think what it is, unless I'm mistaken, is the, the the Miss Lancaster on the left is like from 19-whatever, 78, and mm -hmm. then there's the farm kid, and then the next image on the same roll of film is the next Lancaster, Miss Lancaster, the next year. Oh, I don't I don't know. I think it might have been the same. I think it was the same year, the but same it might have been. I'm pretty sure it was just like a different outfit or later in the day. But it's, it was one of those things where it's like, <laughs> what's going on here you know it and is really funny when because people walk in and they see it and they're like i have no idea what how those two pictures go together and i'm like you gotta know gary that's it well it was funny because you'd always tell the i mean gary has these hilarious stories of like his relationship with a guy that would develop his film and like there would be a role you know because back then you had these the strips were like in three of on a roll and there were two photos of like Elizabeth Taylor, and then there was a like an asshole shot, and and, 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 and everyone's like, "Is this Elizabeth Taylor's asshole?" And it was like, "Oh, Gary, I miss Gary. He's still in Lancaster. He's you know doing you know he's he's." He, you know, I'm he he just goes to Europe a lot, which I'm it's That's is great. such a thrill. But um, yeah, I you know. I, I've always been doing music, and it was right at the, near the end of uh, the book publishing days, I really kind of got back into music and uh, really started writing and producing my own. And it was it was really when the tools developed on the computer side mm -hmm. that that kind of enabled me to be able to really, you know, start writing and creating my my own compositions. I yeah. mean, I had been playing a lot on, you know, analog synthesizers and keyboards with pedals and such and it, it kind of really developed that but um so, you know there was a moment when i remember um you know reason uh, it was a software called reason there was a software called acid there's a software called ableton live and mm -hmm. when ableton live came out that kind of like really i got in really early with that and it become and um you know i was 
friend of mine went in to get, uh, you know, she recommended me to the head of tech support at M Audio at the time and said, oh, you should meet Steve. He's really great with computers, blah, blah, blah. And I went in there. It was funny because when I interviewed, you never know when your different jobs are going to come into play yeah. for you. And this guy is an amazing musician. I mean, he played uh, Everybody Loves the Sunshine with Roy Ayers, like on Soul Train when he was 18. He toured wow. with Stevie Wonder, playing guitar in his band. And he was our boss. He was the one who hired everybody in tech support. And so he... Found, you know, I gave him copies of my books. I, you know, really connected with them. I told him about my paranormal research days, and he really opened up. He's like, you know, he told me about some UFO experience he had as a kid that he's not really able to talk to anybody about, and I, th I think that actually helped me get the gig. So, sure. which you know, really changed my whole career because from that job. I got hired and I immediately was in a position where they literally just started distributing this software called Ableton Live. And I had spent a month with it and really dove in. And I knew it pretty much better than anyone else that was working there when at the time I got hired because it was so new. And yeah. I hadn't, you know, it was like the month before I started working and I just went in on it. And so they started bringing all of the sponsored artists to me to kind of teach them ah. how to use it. And so here was here I was who didn't have many accomplishments yet as a musician. And I'm teaching the software to people who have Grammys and have worked with Michael Jackson and Madonna. But I really knew and understood and was able to communicate that through, you know, having a background in teaching, was able to teach them well on how to use this thing. And so that enabled me to, wow. you know, kind of slingshot ahead there and, you know, then I was doing these trade shows where, you know, you're on stage for seven of the eight hours. Oh. Hey, can I tell you about this new thing? I'm sure you've had spent your time <laughs> oh, with those. No. Yeah, I have. It's oh. awful. Yeah. Oh, man. You're exhausted and you're just like, oh, not again. You know, do I yeah. have to do one more? But it was an incredible experience and that enabled me. It was like one of the guys that I had helped um, who was like doing front of house uh, sound for Hollywood Bowl and Disney Hall and he recommended me for a teaching job at Chapman University. I remember and, that. And uh, that was like a really huge moment for me where I, you know, went from, I had published, a, I'd written a couple books, you know, that were established me as kind of an expert because I'm, you know, it was, it's always these things where, you know. Very, you, very you, casually you throw that out. Yeah. Oh, I wrote a couple of books. Well, you yeah, know, it's one like, of those that's things. That's not a little thing. It, well, it is true. It was a lot of work. Maybe I'm not talking about it because it was like, <laughs> we sounded really great at the time. And then you like do the math after like all the hours of work. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, man, I'm making less than minimum wage on this project. <laughs> yeah. But what it did was it had me as a published expert in this mm -hmm. field. And, mm -hmm. and that actually came from, we, you know, we had this gig where it was like, there was no money, really. It was to go DJ some video game at conference, like ah. video game developer conference. So some friends of mine went up and we were like, oh, we're going to throw down some, you know, video game themed music. And just, you know, we, it was a DJ gig. It was a free trip to, I think it was uh, just south of San Francisco, maybe San Jose or something. And there was a guy there that was involved, you know, their company was involved with putting this thing together. And he ran, you know, he was a, one of the main editors at, a, a publishing company that published a lot of these technical books, like these Ableton Live Power. And, you know, they were basically, you know, you go into these guitar centers and there's a rack and these were the books. Oh, okay, and yeah. so, you know, he we bonded over book publishing because I, you know, you know, there's not yeah. a lot of people who are doing music and DJing that like, oh, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I ran an art book publishing company for three years. Yeah, I could really talk to him about all the details and nuances of his work. Yeah. And so... 
he, you know, told me, he's like, hey, you know, do you want, if you, we got a couple projects that we're looking for someone. And, you know, f- for me, not, you know, it gave me a credit where it was like, you know, it's the biggest yeah, thing for a lot of people where, you know, you need to build your resume and what do you do? And so this was, it was a great opportunity for me. And then having that combined with, you know, the good word of, uh, from a very respected, you know, Hollywood Bowl and Disney Hall are pretty yeah. big yeah. deal. Yeah. and. I'd come in and really save the day on a couple tech problems for them at, at one point. And I had to go down and interview with Dr. Hall, who's, you know, he was this like, you know, 70 year old, uh, you know, the choir teacher, but he was like, a you know, and he's, so what do you know about, you know, he's, he's, he, you know, this was like, do I know my stuff, you know? And yeah. so he's grilling me, do you know what the theremin is, you know? And, and it was around the time that Bjork had done this record with Motmos, who were these experimental producers. And I knew this story about they had just been part of the slow motion film festival where they had, you know, it was supposed to be like a super slow-mo film. And they had, they actually did a thing where they had a snail in real time, like crawling up a theremin. And that was their film. They didn't do a super slow-mo. They did it in real time, but the snail was but, moving yeah. so slow and it was just going boo. And, you know, he asked that question and then he kind of like leaned back and he smiled. And I think he, you know, it's yeah, like, he was like, he's like you. not only did I know what it was, but I was able to like put it in the context of like the latest cutting edge, like Bjork is working with these guys and everything yeah. else. And, um, and that was just such an incredible opportunity for me. And, you know, and here I am like teaching at a prestigious university now. And um, I did that for five years and I met these incredible young musicians and mm-hmm. artists and filmmakers and you know it's one of those things where these kids were just so talented i'm like look you guys have to keep doing this like you can't take the job that you hate just to get by like if you need help you need money you need work like whatever let me know i will help because you're great and you're i'd be happy to recommend you to friends of mine that will hire you and get you doing something so that you can stay focused on doing this that brings up a good point because when you and i started the industry was not music but let's say the creative industry in general was really different than it is today Mm -hmm. and the question my next question that i had for you was there's a lot of people within the creative world who all there's a group of people who find reasons not to do things like it they they really want to do it and they talk about it but then there's always like oh well I can't do it because yeah whatever reason but you are and we were joking earlier when I got your email it had six links at the bottom that was like Nalepa and then airspace and acid and I was like wow and I dove into the first one and with like 10 minutes later I'm like I could just disappear into this one site but you've got five six more how do you accomplish, how are you that prolific? What, what's the secret for you to like say, look, these are the projects I'm going to do and you just do them? You know, the biggest thing I think for, for me is, is setting goals and writing it down and making to-do lists and checking it off and just learning to, um, you know, just get, trust yourself and, and, and stay focused. You know, my, uh, my wife is also is very accomplished also and does a lot of work. We're both kind of workaholics where we're just driven to do a lot of things. And, I, you know, I don't know. I still feel like I haven't done anything yet, really. I, so I think part of it is that where I'm just like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm this race against time where I have to do more and more because I've worked with other artists and I've seen how much they've done. And yeah. I feel... Like I pale in comparison to these folks, and um, but yeah, it's just about getting organized. You know, it's funny that uh, yeah, but that is really and just 
you know, I always give the recommendation of like set goals, long term, medium, short term, and then like get kind of fractal granular with it. And just like, all right, if you want to get to here, work backwards from there. And what do you need to do? It's like, okay, if you want to be a musician playing Coachella, uh, headlining or something, you know, well, first thing you have to do is like, you know, be a really good touring artist and have music out that's, you know, super solid in order to get to that point you have to like put actually one record out and you know develop that into a live show and then to have one record out you have to have at least one song where you kind of develop your own sound and to get to that point you have to try a lot of different things and find hit on something where you have your own unique style I mean it's similar thing applies to visual arts with whether it's like your approach to taking photos or yeah. you know filmmaking or painting or whatever but it's like there's a long time it's a great Ira Glass quote of you know we all get into this because we have great taste and we know what we like and it's really frustrating for us because we have good taste at the beginning because yeah. our work disappoints us and it's nowhere near where we aspire to be. But And a lot of people check out at that point and they quit. And that's yeah. the big thing is you got to push through that and just make a lot of work. And, um, you know, eventually your skills will catch up to, you know, your vision of where you should be. And, and Speak, Speaking of making work that you look at and say it's not where I want it to be, Failure is something that today is viewed very differently than it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you don't talk about it. You don't, you know, you don't want to ever put that out that something didn't go right. But we all know that that 90% of what we work on is you go, oh, that's not right. And you fix it. So when, how do you deal with that when you, and how do you even view something like failure? Well, that was the thing I always say with it. It's you never, if it if something goes terribly wrong, it's never a bad thing if you can learn from it. And there's something positive you can pull from that experience and so um you know I, I look back at our book publishing days and you know for me personally financially it was like I had you know I put a lot of the money on my credit cards and yeah. you know we never got those investors that we were hoping to get and I you know had to go bankrupt and you know just to rebuild but it was like I could have let that completely consume yeah. me and get me down but I realized that it ended up you know it was something that it was a risk that I took and there was a lot of benefit that came from it. And instead of focusing on, I think of people who succeed and do well, they don't focus on the failure as much as they learn from the failure and just keep focusing on what the goal is. And, you know, it's that thing, like it, you have to keep looking ahead. It's like their life constantly throws these hurdles at you and these things come at you. And if you're too busy turned around looking behind you at and really, you know, just yeah. memory, you know, thinking about this thing that happened over there, you're not busy staying actively present with where you are and what you have. And I think that's a big thing for a lot of young creatives is that they have to learn to feel like they deserve something good to happen. There's so many times I see opportunities present themselves and they don't feel worthy enough to to just grab up. it and step up and take it. And they kind of sabotage themselves with their own self-doubt. And it's not a, you know, it's not, a, you can't really teach that. Yeah. It's something you have to do that deep personal work to feel worthy enough to do that. And, you know, I've been really blessed. My bandmates are incredible. And in, in the acid, um, Adam Freeland and Rye X. Rye is just like, you know, Rye is a guy who's just, you know, he, he's just so prolific and so creative and, Adam's been someone who all these years we've been friends that he's really helped me in terms of like mindset and positive thinking really in a way. And, you know, there's a time when I was struggling financially a little bit and it's like, you know what, you're spending too much time 
feeling that stress of, mm-hmm. uh, it's easy. you know, this whole like, uh, man, I'm just, you know, I don't have enough to pay my rent. And I'm like, where am I going to get this money? And yeah. you're projecting this kind of stressful energy out to the universe. And it's almost like the universe Here's that and and responds with oh you 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 must like feeling like this yeah here boom here's there's more. here's a transmission blown in your car like <laughs> another couple thousand dollars that you have to come up with and so um, you know his solution was you know what what he was doing was like spend ten minutes close your eyes and meditate on how would it feel to have this thing that you really want like what does it actually feel like to be holding that money or to have this sense of accomplishment that you want and feel what that really feels like and broadcast that out to the universe so that the you know the universe will feel that and you know i it sounds like hope hokey and new agey a little bit with this whole law of attraction and think and grow rich and all this shit but the reality is this shit works and you see it all the time there's so many people that just like to complain and bitch and negative and whatever for sure and they just manage to find another thing that comes into their life and shows them you're right you know what you you think this is the way the world works and boom there it is there it is you know Speaking about a soul-crushing uh, thing, let's talk a little before. I, I want to talk about the music a little bit later mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. I don't know that much about the kind of music that you make, so I have a, a lot of questions about that. But mm-hmm. let's talk about the soul-crushing idea of promotion. Mm-hmm. We live in the in the age of promotion, maybe mm-hmm. the age of over-promotion, and so everybody is now not only an artist and creating, but ninety percent of the time they're out, you know, telling everyone that they're an artist and promoting. So when you go back to the early days of music compared to today. What percentage of your time today with the Acid and Airspace and Aleppo, how much is based on promotion? Or are you at the stage where you've reached a level where people are coming to you? Well, it's interesting. When we launched our Acid project, we all had histories of other projects we'd done. And we had, you know, we got together one day. Adam and and I had plans to revisit this. We'd made a body of work a year before for a film that ended up not coming out. And... We're like, hey, man, there's some of this stuff is really solid. We should kind of revisit it. I'm just going to shut that up. Yeah. And we, we basically had this, uh, this decision, like, man, we should go in and kind of develop these tracks and, and so we can do something with them because they're, they're really good. And the day before we were to get together, he reconnected with a friend, with Rye, who he had met five years before through a mutual friend in Australia. And... Um, you know, and they they had this, you know, really deep talk and everything. And they, it's like, you know what? I know we had plans to do this, but I think you guys would really get along well. And let's just have him come over in the studio and see what happens. And on the first yeah. day, we wrote this song, Animal. And at the end of the day, you know, we had this track that was like completely developed. And it was like it was on the record. And just kind of had that moment where you look at each other like, whoa, like, what wow, just what happened? Wow, what did we just do? Yeah. And we all were basically like, what are you guys doing tomorrow? We kind of cleared our <laughs> schedules and we spent the next 10 days like working with each other. And we wrote in four days, we did the four songs for our initial EP. Wow. And the second day we did Basic Instinct and then we did Fame and then we did Tumbling Lights. And it was like, wow, that just happened. It was rather effortless. And it was this flow that we had yeah. between us. And, you know, a lot of that came from all of us having done our 10,000 hours of, of work and, yeah. you know, and developed our skill set. But then it also came from just making confident choices and ha- having this freedom. It was, it was really beautiful. And so once we had, you know, we did that and we took four days and we had the weekend and then we kind of like got back together and cleaned them up. 
And we went off and, you know, ride to go back to Berlin. Adam was going to England. I was off to go on tour with The Weeknd and, uh, you know, in Europe. And so basically we kind of, uh, you know, decided like, uh, you know, Adam got these mixed and we were like, okay, what are we going to do with this work? How are we going to put it out there? And we, we agreed, we made a pact, like we're not going to tell anybody who's in the band. We're just going to put it up anonymously okay. on SoundCloud and, you know, let people find it. Let the music speak for itself. Because right. when you hear like, oh, this is such and such as new project, you kind of view it through the lens of yep. judging it against their previous work. And all three of us had history and we didn't want that to be the case. We wanted people to just be like, oh, what is this? This is really interesting. And so we had a little fun with it too on SoundCloud. Every couple of days we changed where we were from. You know, we were <laughs> we were from all, you know, we moved around the globe, you know, we were, yeah. uh, and um you know, and eventually it was pretty interesting. Like we started getting hit up by, you know, labels and promoters and places that we were huge fans of sending a message to our SoundCloud page. Like, hey, who are you guys? We have a running bet in the office of like, you know, you know, who's in this band. And, yeah. um, you know, what, you know, it's funny. We got one from Golden Voice who does Coachella and everything. It's like, what do you guys, what would it get to have you guys play a show in L.A.? And we were sitting in my <laughs> studio in LA when we read this, and it was really funny. It was like, uh, well, and so <laughs> we, you know, we, um, you know, so that was like an active choice that we made of how we wanted that work to be seen. And then, you know, eventually it became a point where we realized people are going to figure out that it's Rai because of his voice. And it was funny, it didn't actually happen right away because blogs would write about it and they'd write, they reviewed like Rai X solo stuff. And then the next thing they talked about was the acid. And they didn't put two and two together that, you know, it was the same singer. But then eventually people were starting to figure it out. And, yeah, and through that we ended up um, infectious uh, records out of the U.K. who work with Alt-J and these uh, bunch of great artists. Uh, we really connected with them and, and had a, a, you know, they really got us. They felt like they didn't need to hear more. They really trusted us. Yeah. I and mean, we had other labels we were talking to that we were – really into but their schedule was kind of full and they needed to hear more stuff and yeah. you know it could have been another year and a half before this music started coming out and infectious like they got it right away they wanted to move on it they're like they saw that we had the vision they gave us total creative control over everything and we just you know we felt like it was like family and um and we moved forward with them and it's been a, a beautiful working relationship are you still so with them today we're still with them today and they've been you know so supportive of everything and uh you know, it's been such a blessing because I've done this stuff on my own for years without a label, without management, without booking agents, without anything. Yeah. My whole career has been a very DIY type of situation. Right. And when you have like a proper team behind you, there's so much more you can get done, especially when you have people that, you know, this is their specialty and they, they know and they have these relationships and they have... So um, before we go any further, yeah. because I want to go into the record label thing a little bit more, I had a question later about mm -hmm. electronic music and the fact that, because uh, we we've all heard horror stories of record labels and mm -hmm. taking advantage of artists and stuff. But before we go further, describe the kind of music that you make. This is always an interesting question <laughs> for I don't people. Know how because, to describe it. You well, know, it was a very specific choice we had, too, that we weren't going to be confined by a, like a, a particular genre. So... Um, I think, you know, it's, there's, we have a singer who's got a beautiful voice and there's guitars and there's synths and there's a lot of weird noises. So okay. it's, you know, it's electronic and has 
people throw the indie rock kind of thing around, but it's okay. but it it's not any particular thing. It's it's very weird. I think I would say weird is if, if that could be a genre. You know, Rye tends to write stuff that is uh, pop oriented. Okay. He, he just has a really strong understanding of songwriting in that regard. Okay. But we all tend towards you know, really doing unexpected choices and, and going more towards, you know, we all love weird noises and, and things yeah. like that. And so, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it, it it can be very challenging at times, but then it's also, you know, basically when we were making that work, um, you know, Ryan Adam connected over both. Adam had taken a break. He had been on that, like, DJ life of 16, 18 years of nonstop touring, this kind of four countries a week kind of lifestyle, oh, yeah, yeah. a lot of flights and... Um, you know, and he just got burned out a little bit and wanted to take a break and spent two years, uh, just kind of recentering and trying to figure out what his next moves were. Sure. And, you know, we had started making some music together again. He was finally starting to get into it, but then, um, you know, and Rye had been doing, uh, another project and then, you know, he, he kind of wasn't feeling the direction that it was getting drawn by, you know, who he was working with and moved to Berlin and kind of met, um, these incredible artists that are in the center of this sort of Berlin uh, techno deep yeah. house community. Yeah. Deep house, you said, yeah, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean... Because I, because when I hear the music, the, yeah. the words that, that I would use to describe it are probably inaccurate because yeah. I, it's what I told you earlier is I absolutely love the music. I just never knew how to describe it. Yeah. So I would use... To me, the safe term was saying it's electronic music. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's safe term. And and to get to get back to the record label, when I think about electronic music, the first question that I thought of was, well, that changes the dynamic of how the music is made. If it's mm-hmm. being made electronically, it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that you have to be in the same room as yeah. Rye when he's making something. Mm-hmm. And so, how did what effect does that have on the record label? It seems like you'd have more flexibility. And I wasn't sure you even had a label because mm-hmm. I thought, oh, with electronic music, maybe you can circumvent the label. But your description of saying it frees you up to do more of what you want to do, that's a pretty interesting angle. It definitely depends. I mean, everyone's relationship with their labels is different. And the role that these uh, the various players play, like for this aerospace project I've just launched, we did pitch it to a bunch of labels, and we had a number of labels who actually like, man, this is beautiful, we really love this, but it would make more sense for you because it's this sort of deep, ambient, drone, meditative sort of, you know, meditative as in like the beauties and terrors of life itself. It's not like, oh, it's like, you know, right. some new age meditation right. with wind chimes or anything. It's like, <laughs> you know, like really going deep in there. Yeah. And, you know, it's not some like, easily sellable pop music where it's like oh it makes sense for a label it's like you know a lot of them were like look you should just keep the rights to this and put it out yourself and you know and and see what happens so yeah you know we'd love to be have that project go and and potentially be with labels and whatnot but for now we decided to to do it on our own but with with the acid stuff um you know it's interesting because we 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 took like for example the first song animal you know the first day, Rye had these things that he recorded on his iPhone, and they were just like lo-fi little iPhone recordings of, he had his guitar in the kitchen through the amp, like reverberating off the wood and everything, and he had this loop that he recorded that the record starts off with, this guitar loop, and I brought that into the to software, you know, and we tried to like recreate it in a more like 
you know, clean, high tech, you know, right. environment. But it, the vibe of this original recording was everything. And it was like, fuck it, we're going to put this in there and this is what it is. And then we had, you know, there was this recording of uh, someone whisking eggs and their bracelet is jangling against the metal dish. And it was this percussive part that we put in the like second verse and this really sparse, minimal thing. And so for us, this production was a, a balance between, you know, when you have such a beautiful voice like Rise, you don't need a lot. So we just really tried to like balance like this like really centered because Adam and Rye were doing lots of meditation and yoga at the time. And, you know, both had come from this sort of, you know, they connected over like recentering and, you know, refocusing what they wanted to do with their music careers. Um, and I think because of that, you know, Rye would go surfing and do yoga and then he would come into the studio and that's, you know, we would meet every day, you know, Adam would come over first and we'd kind of like see about getting something going and then Rye would show up and then, um, and you know, everyone was in a very centered place. So I think with the music, there's this kind of like you're staring at the abyss and there's all this thing, but at the core of it, you're safe and you're okay and you're centered. And so that is sort of a theme that I think runs through a lot of our music where it can get pretty intense with some of the sounds that we choose and the, you know, where it goes, but it's always just like, okay, you're centered at the, at the, at, at the core of it. Like you're talking about the whisking eggs. Where does this database of sound come from? Are you guys recording it? Oh, that field? was an iPhone recording. Yeah, it was like a low quality. Like, oh, Is this something you do like on a daily basis when you're out in the world? Because I do the same thing, I, not to that level, but I love to record ambient sounds on the street. Do it all the time. I mean, I throw that stuff in everything. You know, it's like with, with the effects that you have in the software now, you can clean up a shitty lo-fi recording very easily mostly you just have to roll off the low end where you get like the wind blowing or something yeah. or just like the you know the garbage that's not actually the important part of the sound i use in a lot of my music all the time like recordings of birds and and yeah, you know, nature yeah. sounds or whatever and um actually it's funny you said that because one of the things i listened to on your site was i loved there were bird sounds in the background of one which was like a sort of deeper ambient mm -hmm. thing but there were bird sounds yeah and i was like oh that's a nice pairing there yeah and a lot of times though we would actually take them and i would put them play them at half speed or quarter speed and it would bring out you know these like you would bring out these like and it was whoa what what kind of animal is that you know but it's it's a bird at halftime and quarter cuz i i'd read an article about a guy who had s slowed down these crickets like you know eight times uh, slower and you could hear they almost sounded like a choir happening and i was really mm. curious about this and i just always I love doing that because you could take a sample and then you play it at half speed and it, it completely transforms it and it sounds totally different. So I just like finding things that no one else is going to have because, you know, with, you know, there's a, there's a great, uh, New York times did a, a making of the Diplo Skrillex Bieber song where they do like a video on online where they kind of deconstruct this hit and, you know, they really do a great job in that piece of talking about the process that you go through as an artist in the studio. And, you know, most of the time is, like they say in there, is like just getting the colors right. And it's really at the very end of the process where you strip everything else away and find, like, what are the most important things and the most, uh, you know, unique sonic components. And it's, you know, it's a less is more approach. And, you know, with our, it really, that actually described you know we had written our album like 
you know, two years before this thing happened. But like, that was exactly our process. It was like, okay, come up with stuff, and then I'll get what what is absolutely necessary and what ha- what can we do without. And it's hard sometimes. You get sentimental about something sure. that maybe was the thing that motivated you to do this song in the beginning. And maybe you even named the song, yeah. you know, <laughs> Roads Tuesday. And so you're like, oh, but if we mute that Roads part, oh, it sounds better. And so... You know, it's it's learning to let go if if it serves the the the, the piece better, and so that's, you know, I don't. Know, everyone's got to find that line, and you develop your sound palette. So, is is the level of collaboration in electronic music music more important or higher than it is in other genres of music? Um, I don't know. I mean, it depends. I think it's it varies from band to band. I think, but I mean, and from project to project. Uh, that's a tough call. I mean, there's a lot of collaboration in the projects that I do where, you know... That's why I'm asking. You play something and then someone hears it and they have an idea. I mean, that's basically how we wrote that Acid record was like, you know, an idea would get get started somehow. And then someone hears something and they want to go and throw down a part. And then, you know, oh, let's pull this up. And, you know, oh, then maybe we track this. And, we, and then eventually you get a lot of... Sp- you know, stuff on the canvas. And then it's about spreading it. So the way I I describe it to like when I'm teaching with people is there's like three process, three parts of the process. There's like the brainstorming writing stage where you don't censor yourself too much. You just let the ideas flow and you try to just keep doing it till you catch a vibe. And you're like, okay, that is, that's cool. I like that. And then once you have the part and it might not happen until like you've got three or four other things going and then you come up with this part like okay we can get rid of all of those and it's all about this thing because this is the best thing out of all of that and then there's the arrangement process where you do the storytelling and you kind of spread it all out and not have too much going on if you bring in a new element maybe you drop out another element so that it doesn't get too cluttered then the final stage is the mixing and the fine-tuning and the micro detailing and it's just like really making every part sound as, as full as possible and you know, that's it. I mean, then you just repeat that process. And it's it's just about creating a lot, you know, doing it a lot and just getting confident in your choices. I think the best work for most artists happens rather quickly. Like you hear most people when they're doing interviews, like, oh, we I wrote that song in 10 right. minutes or right. 20 minutes. And it's these songs you agonize over for six months or something. They feel belabored. They feel right. like you couldn't make a decision and you kept working on it and it's at the end of it all the soul is sucked out of it and then you know you you almost go back and you you listen to the initial demo they made in 20 minutes and you're like you, you know go, what that's yeah, got that, that's better <laughs> that's better than yeah. this polished thing that you've worked on forever and yeah so, so to take a little little step out here to go back mm-hmm. a little bit if you throw electronic music into the greater uh spectrum of of the arts mm-hmm. what role does electronic music play what's the role the responsibility of electronic music in in the modern world well it's it it depends i guess on what you define as electronic music because reality is like everything now is pretty much electronic because everything's being recorded through software but are you talking about specific genres of music yeah i mean kind of the music like the style of music that you produce Mm -hmm. is a very unique style of music Mm -hmm. that isn't rock it's not blues it's not country it's 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 its own genre which Mm -hmm. is what i was getting at earlier i don't know what to call it exactly because i'm not that familiar with it Mm. but i think that the that creative people in the community have a definite responsibility Mm -hmm. if it's a if, if it's photography it's 
basically making the best possible work you can and getting the the artist in the community is there as as to me a permission slip for everyone else. Mm. And I always tell the young photographers um, if you're you if you're a, a if you're an, if you're considered an artist in the community, you can get away with almost anything because you have a permission slip to be eccentric. Mm. And so music to me has the same role, more so than photography. It's mm-hmm. just that it does it does something for us as human beings. Mm. But what is that? I think a good analog with this would be like with photography. There's this fine line between you know if you take a picture and whether or not you add Photoshop or effects or you know, unusual right. tactics in the development of the film in the studio, things like that, was where it's like, okay, this is a pure thing versus, you know, where do you draw the line? Is it like, is it okay to show Photoshopped imagery in the gallery or is it, it has to be this purity thing? And I think with electronic music, I think what you can do in the studio is crazy. Like you don't have to have, you know, you can create all these parts that are like impossible to play or, you know, and that's what I, a lot of what I do is just sort of experiment and record everything. And then I call it mining and Frankensteining where I go through and listen to everything that we did, just kind of play around and freak it out a little bit. And then, oh, that part is, you know, most of it could be garbage, but then, oh, there's that one moment that's really unique that I could have never done if I was just sitting there playing straight chords and going, da, da, da. But I'm like playing a chord and then I'm like running through a bunch of pedals and turning the knobs and riding this sound until I get something unusual. And, you know, really kind of like, that's my kind of goal is to try to find those bits. And then you stitch it together into a composition that makes sense. And then for us, what we had to do at the album is like, okay, then you write this body of work. Now you have to go back and figure out how the hell do we play this live because we didn't record it right. as a straight four-piece band. You know, now right. Jens Kuros is in our, our band as this as well. And he is uh, involved with writing some of the first songs with the acid and has been with us throughout the whole touring experience. And, um, you know, he's an incredible musician. He's like a much better musician than all the rest of us. Like he's just a trained Jer- Berkeley jazz drummer and uh, you oh, know, man. beast on the organ. Jazz drummers are oh, unbelievable. Oh, and, you know, so for him, it's like, you know, I feel like, you know, a lot of times we have our songs and they have like a 4-4 kick drum and he's just sitting there just bored out of his mind because I've heard him, you know, playing at the Blue Whale, just absolutely murdering things and like well, crazy because, time signatures. Because in the jazz circle, the drummer is the one that's like holding the, the other pieces together. Mm-hmm. They're holding the horns and the strings and everything. They're yeah. all looking at that drummer watching and waiting. So to take a guy like that and put him into into a band mm-hmm. like yours, I mean, that had to be a pretty interesting transition. It's, it's really interesting because it pulls everybody out of, you know, it, it may pull him a little bit out of his comfort zone, but then he also, you know, him and Rye are friends and have been, are in three or four different projects together. So okay. he's been touring with Rye. When we were first were deciding, like, okay, how are we going to do this work live? Adam and Rye and I, were, we decided we didn't want to do just play it back and like a DJ would and play on top of something. So we decided, no, we want to do this completely live. And how are we going to do that? And it was great because for me, I had been doing all this work where I was, I was devising, you know, this Ableton Live show structure for other artists. And right. now it was like so great for me because now I was actually applying it. it for my own project. Yeah, and yeah. I wasn't going to be sort of like the wizard behind the curtain. I was actually on stage playing and, you know, so it had its own set of challenges where, you know, it's one thing to just, you know, when you, you play something back as a DJ it's, or, 
you know, as a producer that's kind of just playing back full tracks and just affecting them is much different than having to keep time and you're playing a part on a bass line. You sure. hit a wrong note on the bass, like you throw everything. It's all, all my bass player fans are like, oh, you're playing bass in this band? Good <laughs> luck. Welcome to having the whole world on your shoulders. And I was like, oh, uh -oh. man. And then I realized when we started doing it, I'm like, man, because if I do hit a wrong note, everything else sounds off that's being played on top of it. So, Did that happen? Um, you know, I, the most nervous I've ever been was actually at our first day of rehearsals because I knew, like, you know, Jens and Rye have both so much experience playing yeah. live, and I really wanted them to see me as a musician and not like a DJ or a producer guy. Yeah. You know, I knew Adam was coming from a DJ world, so this was like... He had a lot, you know, he was now singing and playing keys and playing drums. And so, um, you know, I just wanted to be thought of not as like a DJ, but as a, as a musician. So I was so nervous and I practiced so hard before we went down there and learned all the parts. And then I went in there and I was, and I, I nailed it. And so, yeah, there haven't been too many, you know, moments where I've, I've, well, I've def we've definitely had moments where, but it's amazing now. I feel like we've gotten to a point where, like, we had a couple technical dramas at one of our last shows that we did. And, you know, all the friends of mine that were in the audience, no one picked up on it. And it was a sign for us that we actually had gotten to a point where we were holding it together that people didn't notice. Yeah. Because you have a choice when you're up there of, like, you know, how you respond to these sure. things. And that's a big part of doing this is like, there's always going to be, when Issues. you have equipment involved, there's going to be some drama potentially. And how do you flow with it and hold it together? Well, I think you casually mentioned something earlier about the 10,000 hours. Mm -hmm. And that's something, that's a, a, an expression or phrase that gets thrown around very casually these days, mm -hmm. but it's very, very true. You spend 10,000 hours on something, you're getting to a level of proficiency where when there is drama, the drama is just like a part of the conversation and you, you go on. Yeah. And that, that's a pretty, and, and, but it's again, goes back to the original comment that you were making about commitment, you know, yeah. spending the time. So let's say that everything you talked about comes to fruition. Everything is great. What's the ultimate sort of idea of success for you with this music? What does success mean? What does it look like? Well, it's interesting because we had this project we did. So, uh, Rise Dad is, uh, like a really amazing, uh, art human being um who i've we we went down to, to learn how to play this music live and we we spent some good time with him and um you know he, he had he he he's a great facilitator and he does great work with us and taught us some techniques to help us get through because you know you start a band and it's like it's not only a creative project your business partners your family there's like you know there's a lot of like high level stress decisions you got to make together and yeah. you know and when you're in a van traveling around, you know, together, it can get, you know, so <laughs> communication is so crucial. Um, but Pete took us through this exercise where it's like, okay, what does success mean for you? And it's like, okay, how long, you know, all right, so what, what is it going to take to be successful with this project? And how long is it going to take to get there? And then, you know, working backwards. I mean, for me, I, you know, I just, you know, with that, it was my dream with, with this project would be to play sort of a, you know, my dream in a long-term plan where I feel like, okay, we've really made it would be to do a show at the Hollywood Bowl with a full orchestra and, you know, having everyone there and we're playing our music. That would be, for me, a, a, a dream come That's true. That's the thing. I mean, I feel, every day I feel, 
is a success and a blessing because I'm able to do this and I'm I'm living my dream of making, you know, a, yeah. my way through as a creative, you know, having turned down like this sort of investment banking route that, you know, and it's nothing against my friends who've gone and done that and people that I know that do that route. Just that, except the ones that caused the financial collapse. Yeah, you know, guys. and I very well could have been <laughs> involved in that and it's really easy to lose sight of the bigger perspective of things yeah. when, you know, when you're in it. It's really important to zoom out at times, and I think, like, you know, I personally don't, you know, fortunately, none of the names that popped up in the news about all that were like, oh, damn, oh, that's <laughs> yeah. what, yeah, I know that person. Um, but, yeah, I think success is, you know, it, it's, it's, you have, everyone's got a different measure, and they have to set it themselves, and for me, um, you know, there was a bunch of things that we wrote down. There was shorter term things and there was medium range things. And, you know, we, we kind of all wrote it, you know, we, we did this exercise together. We all wrote this stuff down and it was kind of like a con, almost like a contract, a social contract between each other yeah. of like, you know, and, and we've, we've, we've worked through, we're like checking off, we're, we're down that list and we made it, you know, there was some really heavy stuff that we were going through at the time when we did this exercise and, you know, it was questionable at that time, like, oh, are we going to be able to get through this and this and this and this? Yeah. And we have, and we're still, you know, going strong. And, you know, every everyone's life is changing and there's, the, you know, new challenges and new things. And so, But it's it's important. I think everyone has to do it as an artist to check in and do regular check-ins with themselves and, and see where they are on their pen. Make sure you're going the right direction so you don't get so far off like you were saying, like where you do, you know, you, you're causing this crazy financial destruction and you don't even, your moral compass is so off because you're not like, wait a second, what am I doing here, you know? So so a lot of people, can, uh, they tie their, their success or feeling of success to feedback. Mm -hmm. And I know that some of your stuff is posted on SoundCloud. And when I was on there yesterday looking at it and across the bottom, you can see where you can see the little avatars of people who have chimed in mm -hmm. along the, the, the duration of your song, and they're like, oh, it's amazing, or this reminds me of whatever. How much of that, do, or does it does that kind of feedback play into what you guys do and how you do it at all? Or you just you make what you want to make regardless of what happens from the feedback? I mean, I think the most important thing is that, and this is something when I'm working with my private sessions, is like you have to love the, the the work you're creating like that's the most important feedback is if you feel really strongly about it because this idea of trying to please other people is it's a dangerous thing because you can end up you know getting all this love and affection and if you're not happy with what you're creating you that's where everyone's like oh you've sold out or whatever and it's like you have to be true to who you are um yeah, I, I, it's it's wonderful when you have stories of people coming up and telling you how much something moved me. It's like, you know, I went out to Lowen Theory a couple of weeks ago, and some some kid came up to me and was like, oh, "Man, really, I really appreciate everything you do. Keep doing what you do." And it's like, you know, I always encourage people like, if you see your heroes, go up and talk to them. Don't be shy. Life's too short. Like, you know, don't be the crazy stalker where they're like, yeah. can't wait to get away from you. And you have like terrible garlic breath and you're like right in their face drunk and like really obnoxious. <laughs> like, no. But if you have really good questions or really good things to say, you know, you never know what headspace someone is in. Like your compliment may come right at a time when someone was feeling really low and they really needed it. 
um, you know, it, it does get tricky when you get onto a certain level where it's just like, you know, constant barrage of, of, you know, it's really about maintaining that humility. I mean, I started this thing, uh, with some friends called team Supreme, which is built from a bunch of my, it's half, um, a little less than half of the group are former students of mine where these, the ones that I was like, you guys are, are really special and you got to keep doing this. Cause you know, I mean, I tell that to everybody, I give the offer out to, to most people that I work with, but these were a group of people that actually took me up on the offer and they stayed active and they've been, you know, proactive in mm-hmm. reaching out. And that's, you know, which to me is like a huge part. They believe enough in themselves to do that. Sure. And so, um, you know, within that group, there's some of these guys like, you know, Mr. Carmack and Jemba Jemba who are like, you know, Andrew was a student of mine and he's just, you know, he's been writing with, you know, produced Madonna. He just went double platinum on some record he did with Sia. Like, He's working with like That's he just did time. he just did a record with like the biggest Chinese pop star this young guy Lu Han it's like you know and, and it was from people found him on SoundCloud making his weird music and these people wrote to him and they reached out and they wanted him to fl- and so they flew over to Beijing him and another guy and and their manager and he they did like five songs on this album for this guy who was in a boy band and now it's his first solo record. And, you know, for Andrew, he's like, you know, keep doing this. Like, you never know who's listening. You never know, you know, who's paying attention to the weird stuff that you're doing and where it can lead you. And so it's dangerous if I try to compare myself to, you know, I was getting to that point where I was like, damn, my students are kind of like <laughs> way surpassing yeah. me. They put something up there and they're getting like hundreds of thousands of plays in a week. And, you know, I'm, I'm creeping along and I'm like, damn, I got to like step my shit up, you know? And yeah. so it's, it was this really nice feedback loop where like it was motivating me to see them doing so well. So I'm like, boom. And then we wrote this acid record and got signed and toured and yeah. played and all over. It's like, bam, what's up, yo? <laughs> Mr. Miyagi making a comeback here, you know? And so, um, but, you know, they've all, you know, it's so great to see because the biggest thing I just was always trying to do was encourage them to like crew up and like find other artists who, yeah. you know, are in the community who get it, collaborate, share, you know, f- you know, and just help everybody, help everybody out, lift the boats, every, you know, the water goes up, all the boats go up and they really embrace that and do that. And it just makes me so happy because they're all, everyone that I meet is like, you know, they're all so nice. And I can't take credit for that. I did really well, in part a though. little yeah, bit. I tried. Bit I you know I I tried to really downplay because they're so talented. And I just was really lucky to meet them. But I think what I ended up doing was re- really just trying to. I mean, it was an experiment for me when I went down to the school and taught for five years. Like I got to you know meet these young people, yeah. and it was like it was an experiment for me. I brought in a lot of artists that I knew to share what they were doing. I was like, look, these are people who are making a living as artists, doing what they love. Yep. You're going to have a chance to ask them any question you want. So do your research, connect with them. And the beautiful thing was they were, you know, some most of the ones that are still actively doing it, they always did. They always had great questions. They always like knew their work and then went up and talked to them afterwards, picked their brain. Yep. And the people, you know, it was a win, 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 win for everybody because the people that came down there, you know, some of these guys never went to college or whatever, but here they are lecturing at a prestigious university's music conservatory, which, you know, was a big thrill for them. And, right. you know, they could tell their parents, like, hey, I'm, like, doing this lecture at this thing. Yeah. And, and, you know, but then also they just feel really good about 
the hard work they've been doing and realizing that it's making a positive impact them. And then these guys feel really good because they're getting like all this knowledge from someone yeah. who's actually who's doing, it. doing it. And I feel good because I'm helping facilitate all this. And it just was all, you know, it was exciting. And so, well, and the, the, the fruits of the labor are evident now because these guys are doing these projects and they're out there. And yeah. It's crazy. It's like Henry, one, you know, and a lot of these guys were in our wedding band. My wife and I got married at the bat cave where we did a costumed wedding. Cause we, we started dating on Halloween and then got engaged a month, year later. And then a year later we did a, a wedding and we couldn't find, you know, people hear wedding cave. and they're like, Oh yeah. my God, that'll be, you know, they jack the prices up for like, shit. Where are we going to get married? And they're like, Oh, if we do it in a park, you only have to pay a photo fee. And then we realized, like, oh, you know, what if we do a costume wedding at the back cave? I knew my wife was the right one for me when she was like, yeah, I'll design my own dress like Tron. You know, she made this, like, a <laughs> oh, beautiful, like, crazy, like, uh, you know, lighted up thing. And um, and we got a 12-piece bat cave orchestra. Like, you know, a bunch of them are, you know, doing so well. And it was funny because a lot of friends were like, man, you're – your uh your your wedding band was better than a lot of the festivals I went to this summer, <laughs> and uh, you know just to see them doing so well like Henry just was in the studio with Sting you know which it's like his mom is like freaking out about this like oh, yeah. yeah I mean Moms I'm kind of freaking Sting. I'm kind of freaking out about it. I'm like dude Henry you yeah. just were you know there's a photo of him with and so yeah it makes me feel good it makes me feel proud that you know half most of these guys are teaching now so in a way like i'm almost like this grandfather of like i taught them now they're teaching other young people and look, as I, and it's it's that pay it forward thing it's like that's what it that's what this is all about it's look like, it, i haven't seen you in 12 years yeah. or whatever but i am not only am i not surprised at all it's just i mean i look around at what you have at the studio and what you're doing and i'm personally i'm not surprised at all because i've i've sort of felt that way about you since i first met you is like you're this you're, you're just, that's just the way it is with you. You know, you're very successful and talented and focused. Uh, I'm curious about, and this is the, I'm going to, this is the last question and then mm. I'll stop torturing you. No, I'm not tortured at all. You have so much going on. You're traveling, you're working, you're collaborating, you're doing all these things. Do, do, is there any downtime for you at all? And in that downtime, where do you, where do you find inspiration or ways of like charging yourself back up? Do you read? Do you listen to other music? Is it movies? What is it? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I've, you know, I, I definitely have make my share of, of downtime, and, um, you know, I'm happy that people always think I'm like, you know, people are like, man, you're always on the road, like you're in Budapest and you're in Australia. I'm like, I saw that on the website, and I was like, oh my god, he's on the road all the time. All the time, people assume that I'm. I'm not going to tell them no that I'm not, but I'm like, <laughs> man, I've been here, like, you know, for months, you know, just walking around the neighborhood with my wife. I. You know, we do our daily walks. We do our, um, you know, I love to read. I, I always on the on the hunt for new music and watching movies. And you know, I I I'm just trying to like take it all in and stay informed and stay up on things. You know, just yeah. there's an um, there's an amazing artist who these works. Paul Laffley was in our first book. Um, uh, rest in peace, Paul. He passed away last year, but he was just one of the most inspiring characters that I've ever, you know, met people in my life. He was the guy who I saw him merging like philosophy and math and music and science and history and all of these things in a way where each one of the pieces has a little homage on the bottom of all the different people whose ideas he's sort of putting together in this sort of meta concept that, um, 
you know, I just like, man, it was blew me away. And he had this thing he was talking about an artist to be a fully realized artist. He said, uh, it's important to both, um, to both create work, but it's also important to go out and take in the work of others and see what other people are doing. It's important to both read a lot because you learn a lot from reading, but it's also important to write because writing helps you synthesize your ideas together. It's important to both be a student because as a student you learn a lot, but then also to be a teacher because to actually teach, you learn so much more as a teacher be in order to be able to adequately explain something to someone else. You really have to grasp that content. So that's always played a role for me of like the sort of two-way uh, street, uh, you know, both directions of like, you know. Giving out and taking giving back. Giving and taking back, this reading and writing, teaching and, and learning. And so, you know, that it's, it's finding that balance and everyone has a different balance point, you know, and, and it's important. You know, some people can just go, 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 go and never take a break. But, yeah. Um, I'm not one of those people. Sometimes you really need to check back. And you actually realize like you're way more productive when you're grounded and centered and healthy. So, um, you know, I had a back thing a couple of years ago. I had to get a surgery uh, for a microdiscectomy. I had a really, you know, I think it was too much bad posture, laptoping and, and um, you know, tight yeah. hamstrings. And everyone's like, oh, is it old football injuries? I don't <laughs> think it was old football injuries, but they certainly probably didn't help. And it was a lot of the driving down, to, you know, down to, to Chapman, down to yeah. Chapman, which is, you know, you know how that oh, drive yeah. on the five can be. I'm about to do battle with it. Oh, yeah. man. You know, because I had to leave. You know, if I didn't leave for a certain time, it could take a very long time and then oh, stop yeah. and start it's traffic. Awful. And that's when I first felt to go was in the car on the way down there. And, you know, just a lot of stress and stuff. And so, you know, after that, it really is prioritized, like, taking care of my health and doing yoga every day and swimming. I swim at the Rose Bowl Aquatic Center down the road here. I do yoga every day. Yeah. So right. I, I, you have to. I mean, even if it's just for 10 minutes or something in the yep. morning to get, like, your sun salutation in or something – um, especially for people who spend a lot of time in a chair in front of the computer, like it's yeah. crucial to get, you know, to get that exercise. Get so, um, I just find it, it's, it's, you know, it's healthy mind, body, spirit, the whole thing. So I don't know, man, it's just, you know, this is the, it's the quest. It's the, you know, the never ending, you know, it's a search for inspiration and, and it comes from many different places. So. Yeah, and then being I, inspiring I too, you know. It's, it's a curse, actually. And, yeah. you, and you have it. You can see it from 100 miles away. I knew it when I first met you, and I walk in here today, and I'm like, oh, he's got the curse for sure. <laughs> it's, not, it's something I, had, I, I know that you'll, you can never find everything, but it's that idea that you're, you're looking for it all the time, and it's a very cool thing. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, I just, you know, it's, it's about, I've, I've always found, like, trying, you know, people that are passionate, enthusiastic, and positive it's really worked for me over the years and it's it's got to be a genuine thing like you can't manufacture fake that yeah, you no. know and uh, and there's been times in my life when i'm i'm not feeling as inspired or whatever i feel kind of downtrodden and it's like and then i realize i'm like you know what it's it's on you as you your it's on me to be the person if you want to be a good friend if you want to have friends you have to be a friend and reach out and call people and there was some days when i remember i've had a day when i was like ah oh, wasn't feeling very good. I'm like, man, you know what? There's a bunch of people I haven't talked to in a long time, and I should just call them and reach out. And then I did, and I just felt so great after reconnecting to these people that it just changed my whole thing. I'm like, okay, you know what? No wallowing around, and there's life's too short. It's like yeah. just too many beautiful things going on for you to sit around. It's like we all have that responsibility to be that 
that make the difference sure. by by walking it and living it and that's so right. i don't know I, I i sound like tony robbins sometimes in my no, that's classes, good. i was but... that, that was going to be my next question <laughs> when is there the steve nalepa you know foundation thing walking on hot coals we're going to do that next right oh man i <laughs> yeah take your shoes off in la and walk up these stairs that'll, that'll do it well, man, I just want to say um, thanks for taking the time to do this. I could talk to you all day long. I think this stuff is pretty fascinating, and I'm really happy to see how well you're doing. You're just killing it. It's thanks, just brother. fantastic. Yeah, it's uh, so great to see you, too. Thanks for, for doing this. It was a real treat. Of course. Thanks again, and um, hopefully we'll do another round of these one day. Hey, I'm down. Anytime. Mm -hmm.